Good. Good. This morning we're going to look at a few portions of scripture. We're going to look at Psalm 23, Psalm 42, and then my favorite portion of scripture, Isaiah 40, as we explore the theme uh, that we're looking at today, the theme of weight. So if you have your Bible, why don't we turn straight away to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes or restores my soul. He guides me along right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'm sure you'll agree that Psalm 23 is an amazing psalm. A psalm that is packed full of powerful imagery and phenomenal metaphor. And this psalm, of course, is most commonly used within the context of a funeral. In fact, that's the context I use it the most myself. But when we only view this psalm as having relevance to us in periods of grieving and mourning, we actually miss so much truth and revelation that Psalm 23 gives to us. This psalm, of course, is a psalm that is written by David. And David has written this psalm to try and explain to us the amazing benefits and the amazing experiences that are found in a relationship with God. In the opening line of the psalm, he summarizes his whole experience. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing or I shall not want. David draws from his own life experience as a shepherd And he uses it to paint a picture of God, to paint his view of God. He says, God is the leader of my life. In the same way that sheep entrust themselves fully to the leadership and the care of their shepherd, so I entrust my life fully to the leadership and the care of God. And the results of doing that thus far is that God supplies every single one of my needs. And he actually goes on in his psalm to give us some examples. David lists the various seasons in life and the various different actions of God within each season. He talks about times when God has brought him to a place and made him rest and brought him sustenance. He talks about times when God has brought refreshing to his life and done so in a way that has been safe for him and healthy for him. He talks about times of guidance and wisdom and direction, times of rescue and deliverance, times of correction and purifying by the rod of God. He even describes times of opposition, times of attack and difficulty, and he balances that with a description of feeling empowered and feeling purposeful and feeling set apart and called. The psalmist literally describes all the various seasons of life and all the various seasons of human experience, and he calls out the work of God within each of them. And we can go down that, we can identify with that, we can see these seasons, perhaps even we can call out moments that we've lived in these seasons, perhaps even we can identify the season right now that we are in. And as we read this psalm, I'm sure you'll agree, it is spectacular. It speaks life to every aspect of who we are, yeah? But every time I read this, there is one statement that always seems to stand out to me above them all. One phrase that is so powerful and so transformative. And that's found in verse 3 where it says, He restores my soul. It's a really short statement. But yet it is an immensely personal statement. And in many senses it's actually an incredibly supernatural word or phrase. These four words are so personal and they are unlike any other phrase in the psalm. 
Because in the rest of the psalm, David is describing the work of God within particular seasons and particular venues of life. We've got green pastures, we've got quiet waters, we've got the valley of the shadow of death, we've got paths of righteousness or right paths, as this translation says. We've got tables surrounded by enemies. We've even got a moment where his head has been anointed by oil. And all of these are descriptions of external circumstances and external experiences. But verse 3 is the only phrase that describes an intimately internal experience. This isn't an experience that's found in valleys or pathways or by waters or pastures. This is an experience that has taken place in his soul. The most intimate part and in many senses the most complex part of who he is. David says there's something supernatural taking place there. He says, God is restoring my soul. And what that suggests is massive. Because to restore something is to take something that is damaged and distorted and return it to its original condition before it was damaged and distorted. And according to David... It's his innermost being that needs restoration. It's his journey through life. He's called out that there's moments that he's needed rest. There's moments that he's needed sustenance. There's moments that he's needed refreshing and guidance and protection and purpose and empowerment. But here he also tells us that there are moments that he needed repair. In his journey through life, his soul became damaged. Different experiences brought different influences, brought different effects upon his soul. His journey came with knocks and punches and struggles. And his soul, his innermost being, has become dented, has become wounded, has become bruised, has become distorted. It has been knocked out of shape somewhat. And when we read that and we think of that, we could be downcast and we could be sad about that. But here comes the good news. In his experience of entrusting himself fully to the leadership and the care of God, God took that which was dented and wounded and knocked out of shape and he began to repair it. In fact, he began to restore it. To restore it to his original design and plan. God is one who is willing to take our innermost being, the most intimate part of who we are, and begin a work there. And it's a healing work. It's a repairing work. It's a work of deliverance, a work to actually shape us the way that we are meant to be. God is in the business of soul restoration. And I don't know where you are right now. Maybe you are in a place where you feel like actually you're going through the valley. You feel like shadows are engulfing your soul. Maybe you feel like you're feasting with God at the moment, but you are painfully aware all the same of the enemy or enemies around you, the opposition and attack spiritually and naturally. Maybe right now you're just resting in the pasture, lapping up the water, soaking in the pool, enjoying the anointing that's been released. Or maybe you're just somewhere in the middle of all of those things. You've just experienced the rescue of God or you've just been through those seasons of discipline where he comes with his rod. Actually, it doesn't matter whether you're mountain topping or whether you're valley bottoming or whether you're Grand Old Duke of Yorking because you're neither up and you're neither down. One thing is certain regardless of where any of us are right now. We all have scars. We all have wounds. Some of them fresh. Some of them old. Some covered up and hidden. Some fully out in the open. In fact, some of us have wounds that are open wounds. For some, we have wounds that just won't heal, but just seem to keep bursting open under the pressures of life. Every time we think we've got somewhere and then we face something else and that wound just opens right up again. We all have wounds and we all have scars. But here's the thing. God doesn't do scars. When God looks to bring healing to a life, he doesn't leave scars. He's in the business of soul restoration. He takes that which is dented and wounded and broken 
and out of shape and bruised and he restores it to the condition that it was in before the wound takes place. In fact, he goes even further than that because when he comes to the place of restoration, he doesn't work to our blueprint, he works to his. And his is the blueprint with which humanity was created to exist. So actually, he takes the parts of us that are out of shape and he repairs them to his shape, not our shape, his he brings us to the place where he works from the innermost being out to completely and utterly transform us. And this is where the depth of relationship is found. It's when we trust ourselves fully to the leadership and the care of God and we allow him to work in the most intimate and integral part of who we are. We allow him to work in the soul. This morning we gather around this word and we allow the scripture to perhaps open up our eyes and ears to see what it is that God would say to us, to hear what it is that God would speak to us because I think he might be beginning to take us on a journey of soul restoration. Let's look at that. Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 42. Although we're only dipping into it, we're going to read the psalm together. Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night. While people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you from the land of Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep. In the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. When we read this psalm, we recognize that this psalmist has been through some stuff. Basically, he's not really in a very good place. He feels weak, he feels vulnerable, and he feels rubbish. And it's interesting that the psalmist is quick to identify that what he's been through and what he's going through has had an impact on the innermost part of who he is. Because he talks about his soul. He has scars. In fact, in reading this, you would think he has wide open wounds. Look at the description of his soul. He says, my soul pants. My soul thirsts. My soul is downcast. My soul is disturbed. The psalmist is acutely aware of the condition of his soul, of his innermost being. And the description that he gives to us only seems to intensify as the psalm goes on. Firstly, he tells us that his soul is weakened by what he's going through and by what he's facing because he describes his soul as panting and thirsting. And when you pant and you thirst, you feel weakened. Your ability to function is impaired. But then he goes on to tell us that his soul is downcast. He's slipping into a depression. He can't cope, let alone function. His innermost being is engulfed with shadows. But then it gets worse because he tells us that his soul is actually disturbed. He's lost equilibrium. He's lost his inner peace. He's in a bad way. His soul needs restoration. However, no sooner has the psalmist lamented the problem, then he calls out the answer. Why, my soul, are you so downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. In one breath, he calls out the problem, and in the next breath, he gives the answer. 
His innermost being is out of shape, it's distorted, it's wounded, it's broken. His soul needs repair and restoration. And he calls out how that can be experienced. The key to soul restoration is hope. It's hope in God. Hope in God brings restoration of the soul. So that then flags up loads of questions. How does hope in God bring restoration to the soul? What does that restoration look like? How does it take place? What restoration actually takes place? Well, these questions are answered in a place where it talks about putting your hope in God and what happens when you do. It's in Isaiah chapter 40. So slip over there as this is the last scripture passage that we turn to. Isaiah 40 and verse 28. And it says this. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. These verses of scripture have become my absolute favorite verses of scripture. And this chapter as a whole presents to us such a breathtaking vision of God. It tells us that he is the one to whom nobody can compare. It says who has measured out the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens. It says he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. It says the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Throughout this chapter, Isaiah takes time to reveal to us the greatness of the God who is superior, the greatness of the God who is sovereign over everything, the God who he tells us holds oceans in the cup of his hand and measures out galaxies with a high five. He is the creator God. He is great and he is powerful and this great and powerful God is one who will not grow tired or weary. And whose understanding no one can fathom. God is limitless. There is nothing that can limit God. Not tiredness, nor weariness, which limits every single one of us. But it doesn't limit God. God is beyond that. He is utterly limitless. He is incomprehensible. And here's the amazing thing. This incomprehensible, limitless God gives of himself to us. He gives strength to the weary and he increases the power of the weak. God gets neither tired nor weary, but to those that do, he gives of himself. To those who are weak, to those who are weary, he releases his power and he releases his nature that they would run and not grow weary, they would walk and not be faint. God gives of himself to us. He releases his power to enable us to function supernaturally because running and not getting weary, walking and not getting faint, that faint, that's not natural. That defies the laws of nature, the laws of nature which limit us, but actually that which defies the laws of nature, we say it's not natural, it's supernatural. So God gives of himself to us to allow us to function within the boundaries of his limitless nature and his limitless power. And such an experience brings transformation. It transforms us from weariness to strength, from weakness to power. And this incomprehensible, limitless power, this experience of God's character and nature, this transformation is found by those who hope in God. What does that mean, those who hope in God? What does it mean to hope in him? Well, if you're reading this in the King James version of the Bible, it probably reads different. And I like the translation. 
it describes those who wait upon the Lord. Now, we're British people. We know what it means to wait, right? We're known and mocked the world over for our waiting, aren't we? We wait in queues. We wait in doctor's appointments and in doctor's surgeries. We wait on our lateral flow test (laughs) to finish. We wait on the next Marvel movie coming out. We wait on the preacher to hurry up and shut up so we can go home for lunch. We know what it means to wait. We're raised waiting. We spend our whole life waiting. But actually the Old Testament is written in Hebrew and when we come back to the original language and look at the meanings of words, it opens it up to us and helps us to understand it further. And the Hebrew word for wait doesn't denote inactivity. It means to trust. And that makes sense. Because to have hope is to trust, it's to believe in something, it's to believe for something. However, the Hebrew takes it further because the Hebrew word has multiple meanings. It means to hope, it means to trust, it means to wait, but it also means to bind, to cling, to fasten onto. So to put your hope in God is to wait on God. It is to trust in God which is to hold on to God. Actually, it's to bind yourself to him. It's to fasten on to him. It's to cling to him with everything that you've got. So apparently this passage tells us that those who in every circumstance of life, those who say, God, my hope is in you. God, I am waiting on you. I am trusting you because I cling to you. In this season, I fasten on to you and I hold on to you with everything that I've got. To those that fasten their souls onto him is released a stream of limitless, incomprehensible power that releases his character and releases his nature to manifest within us with tremendous transformation and brings us to a place of soul restoration because 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 says this we are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory it's the experience of his glory It's the experience of his limitless, incomprehensible power. It is the manifestation of his character. It's the manifestation of his nature. It is the giving of himself that brings transformation into his likeness, which, by the way, was the original blueprint by which humanity was shaped and formed. We were shaped and formed in his image and in his likeness. And here we're told that the manifestation of his glory transforms us into his likeness. It brings us back to the original blueprint. This is soul restoration right here. Being restored not to our shape, but being restored to his shape. And that experience is found in hoping and clinging and fasting onto God. And that experience is likened to soaring on wings like eagles. Hmm. Here's where we perhaps go in a bit of a different direction. Because if this experience of restoration is linked to soaring like an eagle, then actually understanding the restoration of the soul is found in understanding the eagle, the metaphor, the image that God uses to describe this. So we take a bit of a moment We go in a slightly different direction and we build an understanding of the eagle and therefore the experience of restoration that is found. Let me outline six things to you really quickly that God does in the process of soul restoration. And the first is this. He brings us to a place of victory. The eagle that is native to Israel is the same eagle that is native to Scotland and that is the golden eagle. And the eagle and the golden eagle is often referred to as the king of the birds in the same way that the lion is referred to as the king of the beasts, the eagle is referred to as the king of the birds. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. The first is that eagles, when you look at them, are just the most magnificent looking birds of the feathered variety that you will ever see. There is something magnificent about an eagle, isn't there? There's something majestic about them, something almost regal in their appearance. But the second reason why eagles are referred to uh, as the king of the birds, and in particular the golden eagle, 
is because the golden eagle is often called an apex predator. And that means that it has no known natural predators. The golden eagle is always the predator and never the prey, which means it always functions and exists in a position of constant victory and constant freedom. It is sovereign, it is supreme. Now we learn from that. When we cling to God, when we fasten ourselves onto him, we cling to the one who holds oceans in the cup of his hand and measures out galaxies with a high five. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. There is no one on earth that can compare to him and there is nothing on earth that can limit him. He is supreme and he is sovereign. He is apex. There is nothing and no one who can overcome him. He has no known predators and he has no unknown predators because he exists and functions in a state and a position of constant victory and constant freedom. And he gives of himself to us. And he transforms us into his likeness which means that actually when we cling and we fasten onto him, when we wait on God, when we put our hope in God, he transitions us to a place of victory and freedom because we cling to the one who is always the predator and never the prey. He is apex. He is sovereign. He is supreme. He has not and he cannot be overcome. God doesn't know how to lose. He always wins. He never loses. And the God that always wins, the all-conquering, victorious God, the apex, he covers us in the shadow of his wings. He hides us with his feathers. His faithfulness is our shield and our rampart. The sovereign, supreme, apex, unconquerable God is our shield. He is our refuge. He is our shelter. He is our protector. He holds us in the palm of his hand. We are held in the palm of the hand of the undefeated, victorious, all-conquering God. Therefore, we will not fear the terror of night nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand might fall at our side and 10,000 at our right hand, but it will not come near us because we're held in the palm of the hand of the unconquerable, undefeated God. He is all victorious. Psalm 91 continues to tell us, if you say the Lord is my refuge and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all of your ways. They'll lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord. Because she loves me, says the Lord. I will rescue him and I will rescue her. I will protect him and I will protect her. For he and she acknowledges my name. They will call on me and I will answer them. I will be with them in times of trouble. I will deliver them and honor them. With long life, I will satisfy them and show them my salvation. When we fasten on to God, we cling to the sovereign and supreme God and in that moment, he begins the journey of restoration. He covers us with his wings. He barricades us in with his love. He transitions us to a place of victory. When in the midst of the storm, when we pause and we cling to our God, when we, in the midst of the difficulty, wait on God, hope in God, when we choose to cling onto and fasten onto him, then in that moment, we create the opportunity for the victorious, all-conquering God to enter into that situation and to begin to transition us to victory. One of the main reasons why the eagle is able to function in this apex position it's because of its inaccessibility. Eagles live in mountainous upland forest areas. 
Their nests, which are the epicenter of their existence, are always built in inaccessible places such as mountain crags, cliff faces, or tops of lofty trees. In fact, nests have been seen and spotted on tops of trees ranging from 30 feet to 60 feet above the ground. And because the eagle's habitat exists at such an inaccessible height, the world barely has any impact upon the eagle, but rather the eagle swoops down to impact the world, taking a rabbit or a fox as its prey, as its dinner. And here we understand the next important aspect of restoration. God changes the culture of the soul. Scripture says that when we cling to God, when we choose to fasten onto him, when we put our faith and trust in him and say, do you know what, I attach my life to you, we are seated in heavenly places with Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven, which means that we're given access to spiritual realms and spiritual places and the realm, the culture, the environment that we're supposed to function out of is the very culture of heaven. In restoration, God brings us to a place where the world fails to have any impact on us, but instead we are called, we are commissioned to impact the world with the very culture of heaven. In the place of restoration, in the place of clinging to him and fastening on to him, he gives of himself to us. We are transformed into his likeness and we begin to operate within the boundaries of his character and within the boundaries of his nature. We begin to run and not get weary. We begin to walk and not be faint. We begin to function within the boundaries of who he is instead of the boundaries of who we are. In other words, we begin to function supernaturally in our natural function. And we operate out of the culture of heaven as opposed to the culture of the world. We've got to get this. We're called to operate out of the culture of heaven. We're not called to be impacted by this world, but we are called to impact this world with the culture that we carry. The culture of glory. The culture of heaven. Now the eagle is able to function this way because the eagle is designed for heavenly places. With a wingspan of six to eight feet and an incredibly large surface area, the eagle is able to travel at intense heights, covering extreme distances, traveling at phenomenal speeds. Eagles have been spotted and even struck by aircraft traveling at 30,000 feet in the air. The eagle can soar at speeds of 65 to 70 miles per hour. They can dive to the earth at speeds of 175 to 200 miles per hour. And the eagle can travel these distances, travel at these speeds, cover these grounds, function at these heights with little to no fatigue. Because the eagle soars rather than flies. In fact, the golden eagle is referred to as the master of soaring. And that's because an eagle uses thermal currents to soar. We spoke about this a couple of months ago. Thermal currents are warm currents of air that are fast moving and they travel along the ground and they travel along the ground till they hit a hill or a mountain or a tree or an incline, at which point they travel up that incline, but they don't then go down the other side. They just keep on going up into the air. The eagle uses these thermal currents to soar. Eagles are known to stand on the tops of mountains and cliffs and trees with their wings outstretched waiting. Waiting on the thermal currents to fill their wings and lift them up in the air. Waiting on the thermal currents to move them from where they are to where they should be. To where they're going to be. To where they're meant to be. And I think this is why the scripture uses this analogy that those that wait on the Lord will mount up with wings as eagles and soar because the eagle waits for the currents to lift them from where they are to where they're meant to be. When we wait on God, when we cling to God, God sends the very currents of heaven to fill our wings, to lift us from where we are to where we're meant to be. 
And the thing about the eagle in these thermal currents is that the eagle doesn't use all of its strength and its energy to move it from where it is to where it's meant to be. It doesn't try in its own strength and its own might. It just relies upon the thermal currents to move it to where it's meant to be. It's an important truth that when we try and manufacture our own fruitfulness, we will fail. When we try in our own strength to manufacture purpose and calling and to manipulate things to fit God's plans and designs, it will always fail. We have to rely on the current of heaven. We have to rely on the very breath of God. It's not by might and it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. When you watch documentaries, if you see an eagle flying, you'll notice that the eagle flies along the air and then suddenly it drops. What it's doing in that moment is it's moving from one thermal current to the next. That although that thermal current is lower, it's actually traveling faster and will take it further and quicker to where it's meant to be. The eagle uses thermal currents as an aid to flight and the fuel for its journey. It discerns the thermal currents in order to move. God gives to us as Christians an aid for the Christian journey. He's called the Spirit of God. And the word for spirit in the Old Testament and the New Testament is the word ruah and pneuma and it means breath and it means wind. He is the very current from heaven that has been sent to invade our souls to lift us from where we're meant to be or where we are to where we're meant to be to take us further in him. In fact, according to what Jesus said in John 14, John 15, John 16, the Spirit's job is to take us deeper in Christ, is to take us further in our journey, is to take us higher in our spirituality and our intimacy. We have to wait on the thermal current from heaven, be filled with the Holy Spirit and allow him to move us where we need to be. In Acts chapter two, we have the moment when the Holy Spirit is given. And the Holy Spirit is given to a group of people who lock themselves in a room in Jerusalem And they locked themselves in that room because Jesus told them, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. Wait for the power. Wait to be clothed with power from on high. The disciples locked themselves in a room and they clung to that promise. They fastened on to that promise. They believed in that promise. They trusted in that promise. They hoped in that promise. In that moment, in that room, they stood with their wings outstretched, and suddenly there came the sound of a blowing of a violent wind from heaven. Suddenly the Holy Spirit invaded that situation and lifted them from where they were to where they were meant to be. Suddenly they broke out and began to function in the supernatural. When we wait on God, he sends the current of his spirit to move us to change the very culture of our soul and he brings us into spiritual renewal when we fasten on to him he gives of himself can't lose sight of the fact that that's who the holy spirit is it's his spirit It's of him. He gives of himself. He releases his spirit to manifest his character and his nature within us. And this giving of himself is the revelation of his glory. And the revelation of glory is what Paul calls 2 Corinthians as the ministry of the spirit. The Lord is the spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That's soul restoration right there. When God, when we cling to God, he releases his spirit to us. He breathes into our innermost being. He begins to change the culture of our soul. He begins to bring us into a place of renewal because the spirit manifests the character and the nature of God within us and transforms us into his likeness, which is the original blueprint. That's soul restoration through the ministry of the Spirit. However, we have to discern where the Spirit's going and what the Spirit's doing. Like the eagle discerns the thermal currents and moves from one current to the next in order to keep on moving forward, so must we learn to discern the movement of the Holy Spirit. In church, we are entering into a new season as a church in this new year. We've journeyed over these past nine months to this point. We're in the building process. There is something in the air that senses and suggests that change is coming. We're stepping into something different. So we need to be ready to discern the movement of the Spirit. And we need to make sure that we're moving with Him. 
We need to make sure that where he's going is where we're going. What he's doing is what we're doing. We need to be ready as a church to spread out our wings and say, here we are. Lift us. Move us from where we are to where we're meant to be. And we can only do that together as a church if we do that individually and take responsibility to ensure that at all times we are discerning the movement and the function of the Holy Spirit, spreading our wings and being moved by him. The next aspect is really important. In restoration, God gives and restores vision. The eagle's eye is the same size as a human eye, but is four times sharper than a human with perfect 20-20 vision. I think that's where we get the term eagle eye from. When soaring at 1,000 feet in the air, the eagle's eye can cover a distance of three square miles, detecting the movement even of just a rabbit underneath at 1,000 feet. And the eagle is able to do this at such heights because the eagle has a third eyelid that's a transparent membrane that moves across the eye, protecting and cleaning it whilst at the same time maintaining vision. And what's not known about the eagle is that the eagle actually, its eye has two points of focus that enables it to look both forward and sideways at the exact same time, which means it can see length and breadth simultaneously. It has two-dimensional vision. When the soul clings to God... When we begin to soar on wings like eagles, in that moment as God gives of himself to us, very often one of the things that he begins to give is vision. He begins to reveal calling. He begins to reveal purpose. He begins to reveal mandate. He begins to reveal direction. What's happening here, we're beginning to see things from his perspective. In actual fact, what's happening is we're beginning to see two-dimensionally. Because in the place of restoration, in the place of clinging to God, we begin to see in the natural, whilst at the same time perceiving in the supernatural, perceiving in the spiritual. The problem, of course, is that sometimes in the thick of things, we can become consumed with the trial and the difficulty that we find ourselves in, and we lose sight of the perspective that God's given us. We lose sight of vision. So very often in the process of restoration, God gets to work to maintain, to restore, and to release vision. Ever been in those moments when you're really going through something and you come to God and you say, God, because you know, you're not aware of this, God. Here's what I'm going through, just in case you haven't noticed. Here's what I'm facing, and here is what I'd like you to do about it. Here's how I think you should fix this. I'd like you to smite this person and I want you to smoke this situation. I want you to blow this circumstance right off the face of the earth. And you come to God with the perfect plan, and God responds. And he responds by giving you that scripture he gave you years ago. Or he responds by reminding you of the calling that he's given you. Or he responds by reaffirming the purpose that he stamped upon your life or the mandate that he released you to and you're like, yeah, yeah, that's great, God. I hear that. But actually what I want to talk about is the smiting stuff. Actually what I want to talk to you about is what I think you should do in this situation that I'm going through and God just keeps on reaffirming the call and the purpose and the mandate and the promises because what God is saying there is actually your vision has become consumed with the wrong thing. You've lost perspective and you've lost sight of things. You might be able to see what's going on in the natural but you need to start perceiving what's going on in the spiritual. And he's reaffirming to us our call and our mandate and our purpose to say, do you know what? If this thing's getting in the way of the call and the mandate and the purpose, it's going to need to move out of the way. You will continue beyond this. You will continue to go through this. This won't take you out because here's your call. Here's your purpose. Here's your mandate. Very often in the place of restoration, God gets to work to restore the distorted vision. And he begins to reaffirm the call. He begins to reaffirm the mandate. He begins to say, you're only looking one dimensionally. It's time to look two dimensionally. You need to get my perspective on this. Actually, what he's doing is he's showing us the bigger picture. All you can see is this moment, but I'm the God that sees the beginning from the end and all the bits in between. And I'm showing you that there's more beyond this. Set your sights on that. Set your focus on that. He gives us the bigger picture. Time is going. Let me give you the last two really quick. The fifth thing that God does is he releases anointing. An eagle has 7,000 feathers on its body. And eagles go through molting seasons much like other 
animals. And in that period, all of its adult feathers are lost and it reveals the white feathers of youth underneath. And I think this is where the phrase comes, our youth being renewed like the eagles. Because in molting seasons, experts say, apparently, that it's very difficult to age a bird because the bird looks so youthful. It looks young again. Because the old is gone and there's something new coming through that will release vigor and energy and strength. And the eagle in the tail, in its tail, has a small oil gland. And periodically it will peck at that gland and oil up its beak. And one by one it will pull the feathers through its beak to preen them, to, to coat them with this oil that will allow them to remain watertight when traveling at those heights, to allow them to remain warm, to keep them streamlined, to soar and fly at those heights and those speeds. The eagle anoints its feathers with oil to exist the way it's meant to exist. In the moments of soul restoration, God releases an anointing to us. An anointing to bring healing, but an anointing of joy. Here's what the scripture says of this. Psalm 45. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. The word love there is the word for trust, to bind, to cling. You cling, you bind, you fasten onto righteousness. You cling to the righteous one. And here's what he does. He releases an anointing into your life for what he has called you to and for what is ahead of you. And the anointing that is released is an anointing of joy because the joy of the Lord is our so in the place of soul restoration God removes all of that old dead stuff to get ready for the new that he's bringing in he releases an anointing of joyful energy and vigor an anointing that equips us to exist as who we're meant to be and to do what we are meant to do in the place of restoration God releases anointing now, all of these things so far are lovely and great. The last thing that God does in the place of restoration can be not so much. Because the sixth and final thing that God does is he unsettles us to realize our potential. Eagles are monogamous creatures. They mate for life. Every year, the mother eagle will lay two to three eggs and hatch two to three eaglets. And the mother eagle is responsible for raising and rearing those eaglets. When it comes to the right moment, the moment when it's time for them to leave the nest, it's time for them to learn to fly, here's what Mother Eagle does. She comes to the nest and she begins to pull out all of the, the, the kind of feathers and all of the moss and all of the bedding from the nest. She pulls that out of the nest so that the nest is just left with rugged and rough edges. So the nest is uncomfortable. Then she gets the edge of the nest in her talons and she begins to flap her wings and she shakes the nest. Now remember, up until this point, the nest has been the, eagles, the eaglet's entire world. It's been their entire existence. And suddenly their entire world, their entire existence becomes uncomfortable. Suddenly their entire world begins to get shaken. And just as they're facing that, the mother eagle grabs one of the eaglets and drops it over the edge of the nest. Now these nests are 30, 40, 50, 60 feet into the air and as the baby eagle plummets to the ground, as it plummets to its death, the mother eagle sweeps, sweeps down and either catches it on her wings or grabs it in her talons and repeats the process because what she's doing is she's teaching it to fly. The scripture describes God in this way. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on its pinions. The Lord alone led them. There are moments in life where things get very uncomfortable. When things become very difficult. When it feels like our whole world is getting shaken. Everything that was seems to get stripped back. And we come to God and we go, God, why is this happening? Or we turn around and we blame it on the devil. He gets the blame for everything. When in actual fact, what God is doing is he's stripping back the nest. He's making that which has been comfortable uncomfortable because it's time for us to get out of our comfort zone and soar. It's time for us to get out of the nest 
and fly. It's time for us to get up from that which has become familiar and go higher and go further and go deeper in him. There are moments in which God will get into your nest. There are moments in which God will step into your world environments and strip everything back. Make it uncomfortable. There are moments in which it will feel like God is shaking everything. Everything that is shaken will be shaken because God says it's time to fly. It's time to soar. You've settled where I don't want you to settle. It's time to come up higher. And in those moments, we must always remember that even though it might feel like we're plummeting to our death, he's always got us. He will always catch us. He is always there. Maybe you're in a place right now where you feel like your world has been turned upside down, where you've been through some stuff that you don't quite get. Let me tell you, it's not the devil. God is just shaking your world because, child of God, it's time to go higher. It's time to start soaring. It's time to get out of your comfort zone and go further and deeper in him. In moments of soul restoration, God does some incredible things. When we wait on him, when we cling to him, he releases to us this stream of limitless, incomprehensible power. He gives of himself to us and he brings us to a place of victory. He begins to change the very culture of our soul. He begins to bring spiritual renewal in the innermost parts of who we are. He gives to us, he releases to us, he restores to us vision. He begins to release anointing into our lives. And he unsettles us so that we can begin to realize our potential in God. As we enter into this new year and this new season that is ahead of us in God, Glasgow Elam, I really believe that God is bringing us, first of all, to a place of soul restoration. He's bringing us to a place of restoring our own soul, but also, how amazing is it that God is restoring the soul of his church, of this church? He's going to move us to a place of victory. He's going to begin to change the very culture of your soul and my soul and the very culture of the soul of this church. He's going to begin to bring spiritual renewal. We're going to step into renewal in our innermost beings, but we're going to step into a season of renewal here in the church. He's going to start giving vision. He's going to start restoring vision. He's going to start releasing anointing. And while all that sounds great, there will be moments in which God will unsettle us. There will be seasons in which things will be great and then it will be tough and things will be great and then it will be tough because each time God's saying, right, it's time to go higher. It's time to go higher. It's time to go deeper. But you know, all of that, none of that can actually be accomplished if we don't first of all come to the place of wait. If we don't come to the place of putting our hope in him fastening on to him of taking all that we've got and clinging to him with dear life this will only be possible if individually and together we spread open our wings and say okay God here we are lift us, move us shape us, take us further if we do that incredible things are ahead of us